The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Book of Revelation. Man, we're plowing through. We're, we're making progress here, you know. Uh, chapter 19. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and I want to mention this uh, just as we so often do. Uh, well, let me say let me say this. Have you felt that this has made some sense to you? Like, oh, yeah. uh, good, um, good deal. Um, that's always a plus if teaching makes sense, right? <laughs> a little important there, maybe you know. But, um, One of the things that happens let me say it this way. The best way to misconstrue, misinterpret, and misunderstand the book of Revelation is to over-literalize it. Now when I say literalize, I mean physical literal. Just because something's spiritual that doesn't mean it's not literal, literally real, because spiritual things are real. You understand? But there, but there's a difference in a, and, and the term that's used often, and I use it, is wooden literalism. It's it's a strict wooden literalism. All right. Now in Revelation chapter one, don't turn there. He tells us at the beginning of the book, he says these things, the Lord signified unto John, <clears throat> signified. But what's the first part of signified? Sign. So they're spiritual signs. He signified these things. Now remember, and, and there's always the big ones. Now here's the problem. We, we just ignore the whole book because we just want to know the answer to like five things. Who are the two witnesses? You know, what's the millennium? You know, we just got these handful of things, and we just absolutely ignore the rest of the book instead of fitting these few little things that we want to know so bad into the context of the book. All right? So we want to interpret these things consistently. Of course, the whole book. And as I mentioned last week, uh, Bill Johnson uh, was, you know, doing a service one time. Pardon me. And I forget the exact things that he used, but more or less, you know, he said this, and I did this last week. He said, in the book of Revelation, you know, uh, Satan is called a great red dragon. And then he said, uh, literal or symbolic? You know, and the crowd answered and said, well, symbolic. And then he said, Jesus is a lamb. Of course, you see that all in Revelation, lamb slain, lamb as if it was slain. And then he stood up, you know. So is, is Jesus a woolly farm animal? Is that... A lamb, is he, is that literal or spiritual symbol? Symbolic. All right, he went through all these different things here. Um, of course, you could go on and on and on. And then finally, when he got, then he said this, he said, the, the so-called thousand-year reign. He said, literal or symbolic? And it was quiet. <laughs> yeah, and of course, the correct answer is symbolic. If we're going to interpret it consistently. All right. Now, this has not been a problem for a lot of church history uh, until about the last 200 years. Uh, a desire, a tendency to over-literalize uh, some things. Um, which, which, one of the things that happens within that system is that sometimes you'll hear, well, you're spiritualizing and you're explaining everything away. You just need to be literal. Okay, let's be literal. Revelation chapter 1. These things will shortly come to pass. Well, let's interpret that literally. What about Matthew 24, 34? This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, no, what he really meant. Well, which is it? You, you, so, you understand? It's a criticism, but, but they're not consistent either. That, that system. Um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, 28. You'll see the Son of Man coming in the glorious Father, judge, you know, everyone according to their works. Verse 28, some of you standing here will not taste death. 
until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom here. All right? So, well, no, what it really, no, it meant what it said. You know, so these types of things. Now, so, <coughs> Revelation 19. Uh, we'll start with just in verse 1 here. Let's do it like we've been doing it. Get through it as quickly, but clearly as we can. Now, Revelation 19.1. And, and, and again, I hope you, you understand the, the gist, the overarching theme of the book of Revelation is the first century church from the cross to the destruction of the temple. It's the story of the transition out of the old covenant system into the new covenant system. All right? That's why you've got all these verses, like in Hebrews chapter 8, you know, you got the great quotation, the great promises from Jeremiah, that, you know, that God would make a new covenant, put his law within our hearts, no longer an external system of keeping rules, but the internal law of love, you know, these types of things. And then he says, he will remember, you know, forgive us, remember our sins no more. Beautiful scriptures. And then verse 13, Hebrews 8, 13, he says, when he says an old uh, covenant, a new covenant, that means uh, the first one, however it says it there, exactly. But he says, now that which is old and decaying will soon vanish away. Well, the author of Hebrews said the old covenant is obsolete. And it will soon vanish away. So it was already obsolete, but it was still on the scene. It was obsolete, but it needed to be removed. How is it removed? The destruction of the temple. Right? And, and we have this biblical understanding. We have, we have these themes. You've got David. And David, in many ways, was a, a type of Jesus. And, of course, Jesus is the son of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's incredible covenant promise to David through the prophet Nathan that uh, David's seed would, would have a, a throne, an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. Great messianic promise. Um, but David, 1 Samuel 16, uh, the prophet comes, and you know, you know the story, all the sons, and he says, no, there's got to be, well, there's the run out there, with, you know, and he brings him in, he says, this is the Lord's, right here, this is him. He anoints David. But David was anointed as king, but he didn't become the king until 40 years later. Right. So you've got the 40 year, the, the now and not yet theme. You've got the children of Israel. God uh, sets them out of Egypt, but then they're in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. There's your 40. So there was a now but not yet theme. 40 year transition out of the old bondage into the new promised land. It's exactly what you have in the new covenant. There was a transition period. God was giving the children of Israel every up until the very last moment to repent out of the old covenant system and turn towards faith in the Messiah into the new covenant system. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, that's why Jesus, even in Matthew, uh, you know, Lord, how often should I forgive a man? Seven times. About 70 times seven. How about 490 times? Well, 490, and that's not... That doesn't mean a 491, forget it. You know, it's, it's just another one. <laughs> your posture, your permanent posture should be one of forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean, even in that, sometimes there's some now and not yet. You know, there's some, in my heart, I've forgiven you, but I'm still working through this thing. You know, there's some that, you know, there's that sometimes. The 490, it goes back to Daniel, chapter 9. The 490 years, Daniel's, uh, uh, what? weeks, you know, the weeks there in Daniel, Daniel 70 weeks, 490. God was giving Israel every last chance to repent or turn from unbelief in the Messiah into truth. Turn down. Go ahead. It was on a minute ago, but go ahead. Just turn down and like I knocked your key. Alright. Um, so, Well, let, let's just try, let's try to read this here as we, I mean, in Jesus' name, I am going to read this. Now, verse 1, and then we'll, we'll, we'll develop this. Verse 1, he says, After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, 
because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the land, in the Greek, the land of Israel, in other words, with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Now, what did Jesus tell the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23? He said, all the blood of all the righteous, all the way back to creation, Cain and Abel, up until that time, he said this, uh, what was his name? Barakiah, the son of Zechariah, whom you slaughtered between the altar. He said, all of it will come on this generation, Matthew 23, 36. And then over in another portion of scripture there in the gospels, we've got Jesus and Barabbas, and what did they say? Crucify him, let Barabbas go, let his blood be upon us. Jesus, and it was, right? Now, so that's, you know, this one, that's the context here. Verse three. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. What's that mean? That means the old covenant system, or the harlot, the old covenant system is extinct forever and ever. God will never resurrect the old covenant system. God will never resurrect a temple system or a system of the blood of animals. Am I making sense? The old covenant is gone and it will stay gone. And they could build a new temple in Jerusalem every day. It would have no biblical prophetic significance. It wouldn't mean as, as the old saying used to be, a hill of beans. It would mean a hill of beans to God. God will not honor blood of bulls and goats over the blood of his son. Amen. It just won't happen. All right? So that system, its smoke rises up forever and ever. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Verse 5, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, uh, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and the sound of many waters, and the sound of many pills of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, he reigns. Verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, now, now pay attention here. This is where I, you know, this is, I want you to catch these things we're about to look at here. Verse 7, Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now we've all heard about the marriage supper of the Lamb and all this, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so pay attention here. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, now what is this on the hills of? This is on the heels of chapter 18, obviously, but in chapter 18, where you see Babylon the Great has fallen. And of course, we understand Babylon was, we talking about old covenant, Israel. The temple's finally destroyed. It's gone. It's over. Babylon's fallen. The great harlot's fallen. All right, now, immediately upon the heels of the, the destruction of the temple and the, the I don't want you to call it, uh, the death, if you will, of the harlot system, the great harlot, in other words, uh, you have the marriage of the Lamb. All right? Now, we're not waiting on a future marriage supper of the Lamb, a marriage of the Lamb, because we are already the bride of Christ. So if we're not, if we're not the bride of Christ, we don't have the right to his name. So I pray in Jesus' name. Bill Gates' wife goes to the bank in Bill's name, baby. <laughs> and I, I recommend it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Melinda Gates. She, she, she writes the check for whatever, man. It's in Bill's name, baby. And it goes through. You know. So she has a right to that name. And and the resources. The the name represents the person, the resources, etc. Right? Well, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. We're His bride. We have a legal right to use that name. And to make a withdrawal of the resources of our bridegroom. Amen. All right? Because we're one. Right? All right? So now we, we're the bride. So this has happened. We're not waiting on a future, future marriage. Now, 
uh, pardon me, look here it says, and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her uh, to clothe herself in fine linen, right and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are uh, the words, the true words of God. Now, Matt, now you can hold your spot there because you know we're going back. You don't have to, but we will be back there. Very quickly, I want to show you this in Matthew 22. I want to show you something here. Matthew 22. Again, the book of Revelation is not just uh, particularly new stuff per se. Uh, it draws on the rest of the teaching of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. And that's one reason why we've misunderstood it so much. Because we haven't been as familiar with some of our Old Testament things uh, per se. You know? so, so, let me say this. Very often I mention the Olivet Discourse, which is usually thought of as Matthew 24. And there's other places where it's Mark 13, Luke 21. But, uh, the Olivet Discourse, to get the full context of it, you really have to start in Matthew 21. Just keep that in mind. It's really Matthew 21 <coughs> to the end, all the way to the end of Matthew 25. That's the full context, all right? Nonetheless, picking up here in Matthew 22, uh, show you a few things here. And let's start oh, in verse 15. Matthew 22, 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. You are not partial to any. Tell us then, verse 17, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a uh, poll tax in the, in the NASB to Caesar or not? Verse 18, but Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? He said, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought to him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. <coughs> and to God, and boy, there's some stuff in this. Man. The image of the, the market, you know, the image and the mark of the beast and all those things. But in hearing this, they were amazed. Now notice this, man, this, oh, there's some stuff in there. Then you, I, I want to read the whole chapter, you know, but there's just, to put the whole thing, uh, let me do this right here. Let me, let me stop right here and say this. If you look at verse 23, it says, On that day the Sadducees, who do not believe in a resurrection, came to him. Now, this gets really misconstrued, but, but it says they said to him, Teacher, Moses said, and they start quoting from Deuteronomy, there's a particular law in the book of Deuteronomy about marriage. And ladies, in uh, according to the book of Deuteronomy, one of the laws that was given is if your husband dies, his brother has, if the brother wants to marry you, you don't have a choice. <laughs> that is what Charles Barkley would call trouble. Yeah, it is T-R-B-L. Curl. Well, you know, just curl. Charles Barkley. Just curl. Curl. And that's their question here. People get this all messed up. They're asking about the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. They're, they're asking. That's why they're sad to see. Yeah. So and they didn't they believe in resurrection, they believe in heaven, they didn't believe in hell, they didn't believe in anything. As far as that they were yeah. Nonetheless. That's what they're asking about here is this, this law from Deuteronomy. All right? That's what they're asking. And so the, the Mary, the second, the third, all the way down to the seventh, and then last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, verse 28, whose uh, wife will she, will she be of the seven? And then Jesus answered them and said, you're mistaken. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Verse 30, in the resurrection, 
They're not married or given in marriage. And really what he was saying there was in the new covenant world, you are not under that law anymore. Right. That's re really what he's saying. So that's just a little side issue there. All right. I just want to throw that out there. That being said, and I thank you for bearing with me. I want you to notice something else here. Back up, stay in Matthew 22, but let's back up to verse 1. Again, we're on this marriage theme, this marriage supper of the Lamb. I want you to notice these things. Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a feast for his son. Uh, verse 3. Notice this. He sent out his servants to call the servant slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. So here's your wedding. Your marriage supper of the land. Your wedding. Uh, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other ser uh, servants or slaves saying, tell those who've been invited. Behold, I prepared my dinner. Marriage supper. Here's your dinner. Your supper. You know, my oxen, my fattened livestock. I mean, filet mignon, man. You know, T-bone, whatever you want, we got it. They're all butchered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. What do you say? Everything's ready. What's that mean? It's a finished work. Right. You don't have to do anything. Come feast. There was this old gospel song. Uh, I can't sing, of course, so give me that. Right. No. Come and dine. Anybody ever heard that song? Come and dine. Come and dine, the master called. Come and dine. Hands <laughs> up at Jesus' table. I, I have no. <laughs> Any time, you know. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. Come and dine, the master calls. Come and dine. You know. Sorry about that. Now. I think it is. It's an old gospel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so notice he, you know, he calls them out. You know, to the wedding feast. Verse five. He says, but they paid no attention. They went their way. To his own farm, another to his own business. In other words, they're going to stick with their works instead of the lamb who was slaughtered for them, the finished work. And it says, verse 6, they seized the servants and mistreated and killed them. That's the first century ministers, the apostles, the preachers. Do you understand? But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Hello. Then he said to the slaves, the wedding's ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Therefore, go to the main highways, and as many as you can find, and invite them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went into the streets and gathered together all they found, the evil and the good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look at the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you come in without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness, in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. And then it says the Pharisees plotted together how they might trap him. Why? Well, as you read in Matthew 21, at the end of the chapter, uh, Jesus is talking, and it says they understood that he was talking about them. And then that's what leads into this wedding discourse. God's inviting them. And you have this particularly in the Old Testament, but you have this Yahweh is your husband, you know, language, and you are my bride, and this, you know, to, to Israel as a whole. Um, so this is, you see this wedding language here, in other words, in Matthew 22, which leads up to uh, the Olivet Discourse. Um, if we have more time, I would look at Ephesians chapter 5. But you know in Ephesians 5, you have some uh, some scriptures there about marriage. And he's, he's going back and forth between us being the bride of Christ and then our human marriages. But then he gets to the end of the chapter in Ephesians 5. He says, 
These things are a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ. This is Ephesians 5. Let me just throw it up here. Might as well. Look at this. Uh, let me see here. Verse 22. Just, you can turn there, but uh, I've got a bit here. Wives, be subject to your own husbands after the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives be their own husbands. Husband in everything, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. Now understand, Jesus is the one who sanctifies us. So we're not, we don't have to make ourselves ready. Oh, Jesus can't come back until the bride. No, he, he's the one that made the bride spotless. But in the first century, during the time when Ephesians was written, he was giving his bride, his old covenant bride, Israel, 40 years or a generation to come to the wedding. Be married to your bridegroom. But they were rejecting his invitation. Is this making any sense? Yeah. Okay, now... That he might present himself, the church, in all her glory. This is his work. <clears throat> all right? We don't clean ourselves up. He cleans us. No spot, no wrinkle, any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Then he says, husbands, uh, love your wives. Now notice all this. Verse 31. I, I, and I just got to, I can't read all this. I'm sorry. This reason a man will leave his father and mother, quoting from Genesis, and will be joined to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church. So his primary point was us being the bride of Christ. The secondary issue here was our, this world, husband, wife, human marriages. That was the secondary point. All right? Now, um, a, lot, a lot of things that can be said there. Um, as far as husbands, you know, being the head and that type, that's speaking physical things. Spiritually, you say, well, who, who is a wife? Uh, who is her, her head or her covering? First Corinthians 11 language. Jesus is a wife's spiritual head or spiritual covering. A husband is the physical head in, in terms of protector, provider, etc. Does that make sense? Now, we've been taught, oh, no, the husband's the spiritual head of the house and the wife has to. That's not what it's talking about. In other words, if you've got a, if you're married to an ungodly, vile man, and like Smith Wigglesworth at one time told his wife before he knew the Lord, you know, don't you go to that church. I'm sick of you going down there and wasting all your time with those fundamentalists. <coughs> Smith Wigglesworth, great man of God, but before he met the Lord, he told his wife, well, what's she supposed to do? Oh, he's the husband. you got to submit to him. What well, not if he's telling you ungodly stuff? You don't submit to ungodliness. That's not what it's, that's not what it's talking about. A lot of women have suffered. Yeah countless, immeasurable abuse because of misinterpretations, Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 7 and 7. That you're not supposed to submit to your husband in ungodliness. That's not what it's talking about. And then, of course, he goes on and, and clarifies there that what he, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, you are to submit to him to the degree that he loves as Christ loves his church. Submit to love. Am I getting anywhere? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And all that was side note stuff. Now, Amen. God help me. Back to Revelation. <laughs> How are we doing? I'm getting cold now. Yeah. Gosh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. All right, turn it up and off, man. Gosh is like wanting to take his shirt off, get the ice cold, you know. I'm telling you, man, yeah. You can tell how hot it is because Josh's face gets as red as he is hot. <laughs> My sister Melanie's that way, man. Gosh, she's living a meat cooler. It's crazy. She gets so hot. <laughs> now, back here to Revelation chapter, where were we, 19? Um, verse 10. Well, verse 9, he says, you know, blessed are those who are invited. What did we just read? Matthew 22. He sent out his servants, the first century preachers. Come to the wedding. Come to the wedding. Believe in the Messiah. He's, he's your bridegroom. You know, that type of thing. Now, verse 10. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant, your brethren, who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And I love this verse, verse 10. 
For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, the primary understanding here is the book of Revelation. The spirit of that prophecy is the revelation of the testimony of Jesus. Because that's what the book is, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, right? But in a secondary sense, you also see that in general prophecy, it's what did 1 Corinthians chapter 12 say? That the gifts of the Spirit point to Jesus, glorified. No man can, can, no man can say that, uh, no man who's, however it says it, no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. In other words, the gifts of the Spirit always glorify and lift up Jesus. In other words, long story short. Now, so prophecy points people to Jesus and lifts people up. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now, so he says, testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So don't let someone claiming to be operating in the gifts of the spirit tear you down, shame you, rip you apart, anything like that. True gifts of the spirit can point out things that are destructive to you, but it's always in a way that never brings shame and always points to Jesus and to hope and your true righteousness in him. I could tell you the times I prophesied to people that I never I never met them, you know, and the Lord will give me, you know, tell me a few things and I'll say something about it. And then somewhere in the prop, not bad, like just, you know, uh, just details that lets the people that do know them know that, you know, this is really the Lord. And then somewhere in the prophecy, so, you know, the Lord will say, you know, I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with your faith in me, da 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 and then I've had people, God help these Christians, you know, they'll come to you and say, and they mean well, but they'll come and they'll say something like, man, that's that's amazing that the Lord said he was pleased with them because they, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But then they'll say, you know, it just shows you how God sees people. They mean well. They, they're just, you know. Anyways, so, you know, they'll, uh, the Lord sees things differently than we do. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> the Lord sees the truth. And the Lord can look at a person who's in such terrible circumstances and certain things, or maybe doing things to the destructive things, but the Lord sees himself in them. And he's their righteousness. Amen. And the Lord sees the faith in the people that are jacked up and bound up in stuff and the whatever. Because we're all jacked up in some ways. But that doesn't mean your heart isn't towards the Lord. You understand? Now, nonetheless, verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, Woo! open heaven, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, <clears throat> love that, and in righteousness he judges and wages war, speaking of this destruction of the old covenant system, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, which Revelation chapter 4 says that the saints took their crowns and cast them at his feet. Ah. What's that? Indeed, yes, yes. So here he is with these many diadems, you know. And it says, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And there's some things we could speculate and look at that. Uh, even early on in the seven churches, uh, to uh, one or two of the churches there, he, you see the same thing said that I've given you a new name, which no one knows except me. So you see some of this parallel here. But uh, nonetheless, so he says here in verse 12 that he has a name which no one knows, but keep reading. And he's clothed with the robe dipped in blood, which we've been given a robe of righteousness, you understand, and it's pure white. Why? Because it's been cleansed in his blood. Right. You see, you understand that? This. This prodigal son put the robe of righteousness on him. You know, it says, we're clean because our sins, even though, what is it, they be as scarlet, they'll be washed away and made white as wool. You know why? Through his blood. Now, it says, in his name is called the word of God. So in verse 12, he says he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Verse 13, and his name is the word of God. Well, how do you put that together and make that work? I don't know. But nonetheless, <laughs> so apparently he has a name that no one knows, but his name is the Word of God. 
if you figure it out, let me know exactly what that means. I appreciate it. Nonetheless, notice this, verse 14. And his and the armies, now pay attention, notice this verse. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now notice this verse here in the book of Jude. I want, you, I want to show you this here. Jude Revelation. Notice here the armies, all right, on their horses, following him on his horse. Book of Jude, which is right before Revelation, and it's only one chapter. I have it up here, though. Notice this, verse 14. It says, it was also, it was also about these men, talking about some ungodly people, that Enoch. Now, right here, Jude actually quotes the book of Enoch, first Enoch which is not in the canon of Scripture. Now, Enoch is mentioned in Scripture, but the book of Enoch is not in our canon of Scripture. But that's another sermon for another day. Now, he says that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied in the book of Enoch, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. What did Revelation just say? The saints in heaven, the armies of heaven, came on their white horses following him, the Lord, as he waged war on the old covenant system in judgment. So here you see the Lord came with his many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, that is, the ungodly first century generation, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Very quickly, back to Revelation. So Jude gives you one way of saying it, and then Revelation gives you another way of saying it, his armies following him. Now, verse 15, Revelation 19, 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down uh, the nations, and he will roll down with the rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh he has a name. So again, here's another name. Even though he, ha he has a name which no one knows, and then it says his name is the Word of God. Here's another name. Written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <clears throat> Thank God for that. Got to move on, though. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds, now pay attention here, to all the birds. So here's an angel saying, To all the birds who fly in heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of the commanders, and the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses, and those who sat on them, the flesh of all men, both free free men and slaves, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, that is the land in the Greek, land of Israel, their armies, verse 19, assembled together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast, now pay attention, and the beast was seized. All right? And with him, the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, those who were thrown alive. Now, now notice this here in verse 20, by the way. Those who were thrown a, um, alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Now, this is a very interesting little tidbit here. Verse 20, where it says, the lake of fire, uh, thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The word brimstone there is... In the Greek, the word theon. And do you know what theon is? In Greek? God. It can, it's, it's just a variation. Theos, theon. This is a derivative of the word theos. God. The, theology, theon. Study of God. The lake, in other words, the lake of fire which burns with God. What's that mean? Hebrews chapter 12. Our God is a consuming fire. Daniel, a 
river of fire flows from his throne. Now, what does that mean? The fire of God, if you will, the fire of God treats you, and that's a terrible way of saying it. It's not God's fire. that It's how you respond to it. To someone who <coughs> wants to know him, that fire is a fire that warms you. What did the, uh, the uh, on the road of Emmaus, after Jesus resurrected, but he hid himself, so to speak, so they didn't know it was him? Mm -hmm. And then he ex expounded on them the greatest Bible study ever, and then he vanished from their sight. And they said, surely, did our hearts not burn within us? So to them, that fire was a good burn. Mm -hmm. We live in Michigan, and in our household, come real soon, there's going to be some fires that are good fires. Fireplace. A, a fire that warms you. You understand? But the same fire that's, that, if you will, on your stove, that cooks your food and supplies nourishment to you, if you treat it wrongly, it can harm you. Does that make sense? So it's not that God, God never intends his fire to hurt anyone. But it's how we respond to it. The lake, is it, is it making a little more sense now? The lake of fire and brimstone? Literally, the lake of fire and God. Theon in Greek. All right? But it's how we respond to it. Now, uh, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, which we know from Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the word of God is sharp, living, Powerful, sharper than what? Two-edged sword. So it's his word. Again, the word of God, it's how you respond to it. In the Gospel of John, Jesus told the Jews who were in somewhere, you have several powerful portions of scripture there where he's talking with some Pharisees and just many, many Jewish people. But even in John chapter 6, he's got this vast multitude with him. And then he gets to some things where he says, Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you got no part in me. <clears throat> he didn't explain it. Mm -hmm. And in other words, he was wanting them to, to just believe. You've seen enough, you know me enough, that whatever I say to you, I always have your good in store for you. Just follow me by faith. You understand what I'm trying to, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, but it said that was a hard saying, and from that point, then he turned away and didn't follow him anymore. Of course, you had Levitical law, which you wouldn't want to anyways. I don't need a law. But you had Levitical laws against cannibalism. Hello. You know, law or not law, I don't want to eat anyone's heart. Give me a break. You know, <laughs> nonetheless. But then Jesus turns to the disciples and tells, you know, tells them there, uh, are you going to go to it? And Pete finally gave the right answer for once and said, look, I may not understand exactly what you're saying, but you alone have the words of eternal life. I'm sticking with you. And that's what he was wanting all of them to do, you know. Um, but the word of God, Jesus even told the Jewish people, uh, again in the Gospel of John, he said, I judge no man. Which, put that in your pipe. That's a good smoke. I judge no man. He said, but the word which has been spoken, the, the truth, it will judge you. See, truth judges. God's not running around smacking people with cancer and killing your loved ones or anything like that. But if you go up on top of this building and jump off, truth will judge you. There's a thing called gravity. That's not God killing you. You know what I'm saying? So Jesus told the Jews, look, I don't judge you. But the word which has been spoken, it'll judge you. In other words, I'm the Messiah. And if you don't believe in me, destruction's coming. Making sense? Yes. Now, if you back up the false prophet, there's a mention of the false prophet and the beast and the false prophet. Yeah, yeah. That it's. Uh, let me turn back here because I just turned away uh, on my thing here. Well, first here in verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the land. You, of course, you remember. There's two beasts in Revelation, right? Mm -hmm. The land beast and the sea beast. One is Rome, one is Israel. This beast and false prophet is 
Revelation, this is coming off of Revelation 18, the great harlot, Israel. So this beast that's being judged and killed right here is Israel. The beast and the false prophet were Israel. The old covenant system that was teaming up with the other beast, the, the sea beast. Does that make sense? Yeah. Israel, in other words. Um, I saw the beast and the kings of the land assemble together to make war with him, and the beast will seize him, the false prophet. Old covenant, you have political Israel, both of which are adulterous, idolatrous, vile, anti-Yahweh, anti-God, and they're buddying up with Rome. So you've got political Israel and apostate religious Israel. Beast, false prophet. Old covenant, apostate Israel. Make sense? Thank you for nothing. Now, we've covered this, in other words. I can't yeah. go back and... But the, there's two beasts in Revelation. Land beast, sea beast. One of the beasts is wrong. One of the beasts is Israel. Of old covenant apostate Israel. This beast <coughs> is Israel. It's the false prophet is also Israel. Old covenant first century apostate Israel. So the beast and the false prophet. Old covenant apostate anti God anti Messiah killing the new the first century new covenant true people of God his true bride. Mm -hmm. Right now, so they're seized, and that's what I'm about to show you further here. The beast was seized. And what do you see all of this here? The rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him. And the birds were filled with their flesh. Mm -hmm. You remember the angel a minute ago? Mm -hmm. Called all the birds to yeah. come and feast. Yeah. Now, turn to Luke 17. I'll show you picking up on the hills of this. Check this out. Makes perfect sense. I mean, you got to think. You know, I, I get that. But it makes sense when you interpret Scripture with Scripture. Okay. <sighs> Gosh, I'm already out of time. That is not possible. <laughs> yeah. Luke 17. Um, verse 26. Quick as I can go. Check this out. Luke 17, 26. It says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Now, now think with me here. This, I don't know how we've missed this, but we have. Jesus talks about the days of Noah and this type of stuff, and you're about to see here. Well, listen, in the days of Noah, the people who were taken away were the ungodly. Right. The people who were left behind were the godly. You. Noah and his family. So being taken away was not a good thing. Being left were the godly. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah. The Bible repeatedly says, the meek will inherit the earth. We're not trying to get taken out of here. This earth, God gave to us to exercise godly dominion on. Jesus said, quoting the Psalms, and the Psalms repeatedly say, the meek will inherit the earth, but the wicked will be taken from the land. You know what I mean? Now, keep reading. Verse 27. For they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. There's your marriage again. They were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, but the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as in the days of Lot. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the very day that Lot went from Sodom, it rained fire, brimstone from heaven, destroyed them all. It will be just the same way on the day that the Son of Man is what? Revealed. Apocalypsed in Greek? The book of Revelation. Reveal. Apocalypse. Unveiled. On the same day. In other words, if the Son of Man is apocalypsed or unveiled or revealed. Verse 31. On that day, the one who sits on the housetop. Well, that alone should tell you this is first century. Most people aren't sitting around on their housetops today. I know there's a few exceptions, but <laughs> but by and large. Well, in Israel at this time, that's how homes were made. Think about Luke chapter 5. What did they do? There was a man that was paralyzed. They couldn't get to Jesus. Well, it was just a common thing. Go up on the roof, 
remove part of the tiling, if you will, system, and let him down in the press. This was common. Right? This is how their homes are built. Uh, the one who's on the housetop, he, he must not come down, and he must not take them out. Likewise, the one who's on the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Mm -hmm. What did she do? She turned she back, turned back mm -hmm. on an old lifestyle. Mm -hmm. That's what she turned back for. She was sorrowful that she was having to leave the ungodly lifestyle. They're being told here, Jesus is telling his first century audience, abandon this un what became ungodly, and they were very vile and apostate. They had so perverted the true biblical Jewish system, nonetheless. He's saying, don't look back and want to cling to this old system. Am I making, you understand what I'm saying? Don't look back on it with sorrow. Abandon the old system. Just as Lot's wife looked back to hold on to the old system, don't look back in your heart and hold to the old system. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever uh, loses his life will preserve it. Now notice this. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken. The other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the mill at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. In other words, when the Romans came in, some people they killed on the spot at the mill. People, and in one of the other accounts, it says there will be two men in one bed. In other words, trying to hide from the Romans. But some were killed on the spot, some were taken into slavery and exile. That's what he's saying here. There will be two women. Now, what did Jesus tell them in Luke 21? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee. Don't look back. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Don't try to even run in and get anything. Hit the road, Jack. <laughs> That's what he's telling them here. And then verse 37, he answered. And they said, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Revelation 19, what did, he, what did the angel say? Birds, come and feast. Same thing here, the vultures will be gathered. Now, I at least have to touch on the millennium here for you because I think some of you will kill me if I don't. <laughs> Very quickly, and if you have to go, I certainly understand. What's that? All next week? I think there's more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. Let, let me at least show you this, though, here as we... Probably can't finish this, but I just want to start this. Revelation 20, verse 1. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss. Revelation 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. A couple of things here. First of all, notice here he's, he's talking about Satan, obviously, but what's he say? The dragon, the serpent of old. Well, Satan is not literally a dragon. Satan is also not literally a snake. Literally. I know he's a snake, but he's not literally a snake. That's why even in Genesis, you've got to, you've, you know, the serpent is talking. It's spiritual symbolic language, right? The devil wasn't a literal snake, and we don't understand exactly the, the literality of all of that. But it's, even when he says he was made, you know, to on his belly below the, the, the to dust of the earth, that's saying he's, he's, he lost his spiritual status. He's below, we're made of the dust of the earth. He's made below the dust of the earth. We have, a, in other words, he's under our authority. Does that make a little sense there? It's spiritual language. So even in this very verse, you have clear, obvious spiritual symbolism being utilized to communicate something. The, uh, the devil, who's the dragon, the serpent of old, was bound for a thousand years. Now, there's never been any church council, and there's been great church councils, 
But there's never been a uniform declaration, if you will, of eschatology throughout church history. All right? And there's never been an absolute uniform declaration of what the so-called thousand years does or does not mean. But I just want to, because for the last 200 years in Western Christianity, it's believed, you know, oh, there's going to be a literal thousand years of mostly heaven on earth. All, and you get into these weird, bizarre theories about people living outside of a literal, physical New Jerusalem who aren't believers and all this kind of weird stuff. The thousand years here is symbolic. Now, there's several different views on what this does or does not mean. Um, and, and in most of in most of the world, uh, outside of particularly America, but Western Christianity, there is not this view that one day in the future there's going to be a literal thousand years of Jesus in Jerusalem in a rebuilt temple. Um, mostly heaven on earth with a few rebels out there somewhere, all right? Even today, that's not the majority belief. That's the majority American Western Christianity belief, all right? Now, there's a few views. Uh, one of them that most of you are familiar with, whether you know what it's called or not, it's called premillennialism. That is, Jesus will return to earth physically, visibly, literally, and will more or less instantly initiate a thousand-year utopia on planet Earth from Jerusalem. Headquarters. Premillennialism. Pre-millennium. He comes pre-the millennium. There's also what's called post-millennial. Post-millennial is more of the majority view of church history and even the church today. Post-millennial, well, pre-millennial, he comes prior to the millennium and then initiates a physical, literal millennium. Post-millennium is kind of the opposite. Post-millennialism, this is a belief of, and I, of course, pre-millennial, like Perry Stone's pre-millennial. Um, and this is just one sub. It's amazing. There's only these like six verses that even say anything about this thousand years, but it's so debated. It's crazy. And thought of it. And I get it. Don't misunderstand me, but it's wild. Um, Post-millennialism is the majority view of most of church history. That's the view that the church is continually progressing towards influencing cult the world and culture. This, as a matter of fact, this is literally why, why America was founded. Uh, people came to this new land because they thought we could uh, basically, and I, I don't, I'm probably over, you know, but making a point, sort of initiate this golden age. We'll bring heaven to earth. This is the new world. We can go there and set up a place where we can worship God freely. Do you under, I'm sure you understand all the Ivy League schools today that are so liberal and so anti-God and so, like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all you know, those were Christian universities when they were founded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, why was that? That's because these post-millennial Christians, Jonathan Edwards, you've heard of him at least, so many of these old people uh, from old, you know what I'm saying, uh, years gone dying, they believed we can come here and we can set up heaven on earth, essentially. So post-millennialism, long story short, is the belief that the church will more and more, very gradually, very slowly, very progressively, will influence the culture, the arts, uh, education, the political world, etc. And will eventually enter into this sort of golden age where most of the world is Christianized. Overtly, blatantly, very much so. And that is the so-called thousand years. It doesn't mean everything will be Christian or everyone will be Christian, but by and large, very much so, the, the, or the rule. The exception would be an unbeliever here and an unbeliever there. But the vast majority of the world is Christianized. And for not a literal thousand years, but for an undetermined amount of time, that will go on. And at the end of that, post Post-millennium, Jesus comes back and 
stamps his fingers and wraps this thing up. Then the other majority view, post-millennial, the other one I'll mention here is all-millennial. All means not or no. Like atheist, all, all-theist, no-theist, no-god. All-millennial means there is no literal physical millennium, sort of like post-millennialism. And it believes that what we might call the church age is the so-called millennium or the thousand-year reign. All-millennial. So there is no literal physical thousand-year reign. It's the church age. God is reigning now through his people, spiritually. He sits on the throne of our hearts and he's reigning. So post-millennial and all-millennial, which are the majority views, they believe it's a spiritual reign, not a literal physical reign in Jerusalem. Premillennial is the only one that believes, and it's the majority view in America, it's not, uh, pretty much so. It's the most well-known one. Um, anyways, premillennial, postmillennial, all-millennial. The last view is called transmillennial. Transmillennial. Trans meaning like transition. And this is the view that I hold to. It's the view that the 40 years from the resurrection of Jesus and, the day of, and particularly the day of Pentecost where the kingdoms inaugurated in the earth and then up until the destruction of the temple, that that's the so-called reign, the, the so-called thousand year, right? In the transition period, trans, transition, transmillennial. The millennium of the thousand years was the time that God gave them to transition from old covenant into new covenant, all right? Um, now, I want you to pay attention here. I, I know, God, it's going so late, I can't. I'm sorry. Just let me at least do this one thing here. Notice this. Verse 3. He threw him into the abyss. He shut it and sealed it over him so that, this is what I want you to see. This is how Satan was bound. Satan, it never says that, the, that Satan was bound so that he had no influence at all. That he, you know, it, this it specifies how he was bound. He was, he was bound so that he would no longer deceive the nations. How is that? What does 2 Corinthians chapter 4 say? The God of this age, at that time, the God of this age has blinded their minds so they would not see the glorious light of the gospel and believe. But when the gospel came, through the death, burial, resurrection, Satan was bound. Why? Because it's the truth that makes you free. The knowledge of the truth makes free. So Satan was not bound so that he couldn't do anything, but he was bound in that truth had finally come in its fullness. And when the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. The truth makes you free. All right, now I want to say a lot more about this, but... Time will not permit it. Look at verse 4. This will be the last verse. Then I saw the thrones, and they that sat on them. Judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them. Now this is the other thing I really want you to understand. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, the Word of God. They didn't worship the beast, the image. They didn't receive the mark on the forehead. They came to life and reigned for a thousand years. So who are the ones that partook of this resurrection and reigned with Jesus for a thousand years? Those who did not receive the mark and worship that system and who were beheaded. The martyrs in the first century. So the only way a person can partake in this, this reign, this thousand year reign, so-called, is by being beheaded. That's the only people. There's no one else mentioned here. I can't help that. I'm sorry. I know we've all been told otherwise. I can't help that. This verse says, those who were beheaded are the ones who came to life and reigned for the thousand years. So if you're wanting to get in on this reign, put your head on the chopping block. Because those are the only ones here mentioned that reigned the thousand years. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but a thousand. I know, I know, it's hard. We've been told otherwise. We think it's only physical, literally. Just, just a few examples here. Psalm chapter 50, verse 10. 
God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Judges chapter 15, verse 15, says that Samson took the jawbone of a donkey. And, and how many did he kill or slay? A thousand. Most scholars emphatically believe that's just a figurative statement. Then you get to Saul and David. What did the women that were shouting and celebrating say about David? Saul has slain his thousands. David his ten thousands. What did the psalmist say about, uh, how does it say it there? It's um, better is one day in your court than thousands elsewhere. And there are so many examples. I'll try to have them. I have them, but I'll put them up on the screen next week when we have time and we can pick up on this. All right. Again, I report, we report, you decide. I don't demand that anyone agrees with me on these things. I know this is hard. I know we've been told otherwise. I'm so sorry about that. I can't help that. I was told the same stuff too. But thank God we can repent and change our minds and believe the truth. Amen. Now, the gospel sets you free. That's exactly right. And we're going to get into Revelation 22. And it's, you know, it talks about the, the leaves of the tree are for the what? Healing of the nations. That's not in heaven. That's the nations. Hello? You know what I'm saying? So, again, this stuff starts making sense. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.com. Dot org.